a jet and it's idling in the parking lot. <laughs> not really, not really. Really, he's too kind and, and so many of you uh, have been kind to Catherine, to myself and to our family over the years. I've recognized many faces here and many people who have uh, poured into our lives. It was 16 years ago this summer uh, that right here, at this altar, um, two chairs were placed, and uh, Pastor Dave at the time called Catherine and myself down to the front and prayed over us and washed our feet as we were commissioned to leave uh, to go to South Asia and to serve uh, with the Muslim people group there. Very, very difficult place. We had a eight-and-a-half-month-old son, Aiden, who's now almost 17 years old. He's driving, so watch out. Um, and uh, we found out that summer, right after we were commissioned here, that uh, we were pregnant with, with Tori Beth, who would be born uh, in South Asia. And then Caleb came along a couple of years after. I um, do want to bring greetings from Catherine and from the kids this morning. I apologize for those of you who... Uh, we're here 16 years ago and wanted to see them much more than you wanted to hear from me. My, my sweet wife, the servant that she is, is uh, uh, teaching Sunday school this morning, uh, taking care of kids and teaching them the gospel. And uh, though she wanted to be here, uh, that's her ministry. And she desires to uh, fulfill that ministry. And, and I'm grateful for her uh, in doing that. Well, this morning, what I want to talk to you about is the Word of God and the Savior of the world, the Word of God and the Savior of the world. Ultimately, there, there is only one hero uh, to the story that we're a part of, it, and it is not me, uh, it's not my family, uh, it's not the many other people that Green Pines has been so faithful to send out over the years. In fact, I corresponded just last week with Chad and Amanda. Uh, many of you are familiar with them. I was teaching at Southeastern uh, several years back and told the story of how Green Pines had invested in us and um, the love that we had been shown and the commissioning that had taken place here. And at the end of that class, a young man and young woman came up to me afterwards and they said, we just want to let you know that uh, we're about to be sent out from the same church. And so I want to commend you for that, for being a church that loves on families and keeps the world in view um, with the gospel as, as center. I also want to commend you for the way that you have given your pastor the opportunity to take a sabbatical. That is uncommon, and some of you may think, well, wait a second, I don't get a sabbatical. Um, a sabbatical is a time of rest and refreshing, but for a pastor in particular, uh, when we teach the Word of God, we have to teach out of an overflow. Um, and it will serve this congregation well, I promise you, when Pastor Jared comes back and is refreshed and renewed and ready to lead all the more. So I just want to commend you for that and uh, encourage you. This morning, if you would, take your Bibles and turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. Uh, we're going to uh, read a text that begins in verse 13 and runs all the way through chapter 4, verse 11. And again, the topic of the sermon this morning is the Word of God and the Savior of the world. The Word of God and the Savior of the world. And Honestly, at first glance, you're probably going to look at this uh, section of Scripture that I'm going to read, and you're going to say, well, you know, that doesn't seem like uh, much of a missions text. I'm a missions professor uh, at Southeastern and, and get to send out people. But 
I think you'll see by the end of our time this morning that this is central to the mission of reaching the world, uh, what happens right here in Matthew chapter 3, uh, beginning in verse 13. So if you would, read with me. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. And John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting forty days and forty nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. But Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all of the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Let's pray. Father, we give thanks to you this morning for your word, which is true and trustworthy, Lord God. We thank you that your word is powerful and that by your word you accomplish your purposes always. And we thank you for sending your son who would perfectly trust and obey your word, even at great cost, Lord God. We thank you that Jesus did not seek after a crossless kingdom, but rather that he gave himself freely so that we might gain you. And so, Father, we pray this morning as we come together and we walk through this text of Scripture that your Spirit would guide us, that you would lead us into all truth. And I pray, Father, that as you prompt our hearts, that you would enlarge Christ in our minds, Lord God, that we would worship him as he alone deserves to be worshipped, and that we would trust your word, Lord, and that we would act in faith. And I pray all of this in the name of Christ, who is our King. Amen. So I want you to think about the context of this message this morning. Jesus' baptism by John serves as really the inauguration of the entirety of Jesus' earthly redemptive mission. And that mission, he says in this text of Scripture, is to... Fulfill all righteousness. This is the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. It starts right here in the waters of baptism. And John, as you notice at the beginning of this text, hesitates to baptize the Son of God. 
but Jesus understands that his mission is contingent upon his obedience right here and right now in this moment. And in so doing, um, he begins to identify with you and I through baptism. You know, baptism is that thing which is given to us where we identify with the Lord Jesus Christ in repentance and in faith. Jesus, the perfect Son of God, had no need of repentance. And yet he follows and is baptized in order to fulfill all righteousness on our behalf. His obedience becomes our acceptance before the Father. And so he would let nothing stand between him and the fulfillment of all righteousness so that you and I can know and be reconciled to God the Father. And what's going to happen as a result of this at the beginning of his life, he's not only going to perfectly live out and follow the law of God, but he's also going to keep all of God's promises rescuing humanity by living out and embodying the gospel of God. And that is our hope this morning. I want you to notice at the beginning of our text this morning that there are three amazing things that happen at the baptism of Jesus. Three, three things that happen just as a, by way of preface of what we're going to be talking about this morning. First, I want you to notice that the heavens are opened. The heavens are open. This is, this is significant because Matthew's gospel is the beginning of what we call the New Testament. And what's happening here is that the canon of Scripture, or the, the Word of God, is being brought to the people for the first time in over 400 years. There had been a 400-year period of silence. In fact, if you look at the, the way that the, the Jewish people order the Bible, their Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, ends with Second Chronicles. That's the last chronological thing that happened in time uh, going through the centuries. And there's been a 400-year period of silence between the last chapter of Second Chronicles and this chapter uh, the first few chapters of the book of Matthew. And so when Jesus comes up from the waters of baptism, the heavens open. And it's symbolically saying that God is opening up once again and He is going to bring something to His people. I want you to notice the second amazing thing that happens there is that the Spirit of God descends upon Jesus. The Spirit descends upon Him. God is anointing His Son as he promised. You, you see, way back in the beginning of the story that we call the Bible, God had promised that he would send a rescuer. The Jewish people identified that rescuer as the Messiah. And they were looking, they were waiting, they were longing for the Messiah to come. And time and again, men would come upon the scene and they would become a king or they would be a prophet, but they were not the Messiah. They could not rescue all of the people. But what would happen is every time someone would be anointed king, God himself would send his spirit upon that person to empower them to accomplish his purposes in their generation. What happens here is significant because when Jesus comes up from the waters of baptism, the spirit of God descends upon him, anointing him as the fulfillment of the Davidic kingdom. He is the Messiah. He is the promised one. He is going to be the King of kings and the Lord of lords. But the Spirit descends upon him also to show that he is not only going to be king, but that he is also going to be the suffering servant. 
In fact, if you look in Psalm chapter 2, you'll see uh, where the prophecy speaks of the coming king. And in Psalm chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. That's a messianic promise. The psalmist is speaking about the coming king who would be anointed by God to fulfill all righteousness as the king of kings. But the Spirit comes upon him not just to anoint him king, but also to anoint him as the suffering servant. In fact, if you look in Isaiah 42, you'll see this prophecy that's spoken in the Old Testament. In Isaiah 42, 1, it says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. And what happens in Isaiah's prophecy there is it begins to unfold that this this one whom God anoints, this one with whom God's soul is pleased, would suffer greatly in order to reconcile God's people to himself. And so what we find here is Jesus comes up from the waters of baptism. The heavens open. God is speaking. God is about to speak. The Spirit comes down, anoints Jesus king of kings, anoints him the suffering, servants and the, the suffering servant, and then God speaks. What does he say? He says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. In other words, here he is. Here's the one promised Ages ago, the one who's come to fulfill all of my promises. This is him. So what I want us to notice this morning is this text transitions. Usually, these two passages of Scripture are taught separately. You've got the baptism story, right? And and everything seems great because it ends with God speaking, saying, this is my son and I'm pleased with him. But then when you turn the page to chapter 4, verse 1, It says, then Jesus was led up into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And those two passages are normally taught separately, but I believe that we cannot understand them separately because they're intricately combined to fulfill God's promises. In fact, what I want us to see this morning, here's the the main point. If you take nothing else away, here's what I want you to understand this morning, that God's Word conveys His will and reveals his mission. God's word conveys his will and reveals his mission for Jesus and for you and me. The question is whether or not we will trust and obey what God has spoken. And praise God, as you're going to see, Jesus perfectly trusted and obeyed the Father's word, fulfilling God's mission so that you and I have the opportunity to be called His children. So if you would, look with me in Matthew chapter 4, and this is where we're going to concentrate our time this morning. We need to understand those things as the backdrop of what's about to happen. Because most often when people open up Matthew chapter 4 and they read about Jesus being tempted, uh, the the danger is, is that we jump straight to application and we say, okay, when we're tempted by the devil, then the proper response is that we quote Scripture. And that's not a bad thing, that's not a wrong thing, but that is not the point of this text. 
The point of this text is not that here's your strategy for overcoming temptation. The point of this text is that when you fail to overcome temptation, Jesus has perfectly overcome. And that He becomes for you what you cannot be for yourself. It's His righteousness that makes us right before God, not our own. And so there is grace found in Matthew chapter 4. The gospel is found in Matthew chapter 4. So if you would look with me there at the words beginning in Matthew 4. It says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Well, yeah. I haven't eaten since 8 o'clock this morning and I'm hungry. I want you to notice it, it says that he was led up by the Spirit. And I want you to understand this. It it, it sounds almost unfair because the Spirit is the one that's leading Jesus into the wilderness, right? And yet he's being led there to be tempted by the devil. That, That sounds like he's being set up. But I want you to understand that the Spirit always leads in perfect harmony with the Father's will. Where the Spirit leads and empowers, God's will can be accomplished. And that's exactly what we're going to see here. Mark, in his gospel, actually tells this same story, but he uses a much stronger word. In fact, Matthew says where the Spirit led Jesus up into the wilderness. Mark says that the Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness. It uses this Greek word, ekbalo, which means to cast out or to be thrown. The Spirit of God drove Jesus or cast Jesus out into the the wilderness, to be tempted. Now again, that may sound like an unfair thing. What's God doing? Pushing Him out to be tempted. But you have to understand, there's a difference between a test and a temptation. God tests us to prove us. God tests us in order to substantiate our faith and trust in Him. Oftentimes, the devil will take that test and turn it into a temptation. Whereas God tests us to lift us up in faith, to teach us to trust Him, the devil tempts us to tear us down and to destroy our faith. So the Lord God sent Jesus into the wilderness to be tested. The devil turned the test into a temptation, trying to destroy Jesus' trust of the Father. And what's the first thing that the devil said? The devil says, Did God really say? Did God really say that you're the Son of God? If you're the Son of God, then turn these stones into bread. Now I want you to flash back for a minute to two different places in the Bible. I'll just kind of give you the story, give you the narrative. I think that this is actually reflecting back first and foremost to the people of Israel. Because remember, after the people of Israel had been led out of captivity in Egypt, they had been there for 400 years, right, in captivity. And when they were led out by God through His servant Moses into the wilderness, they wandered for 40 years. Here Jesus has been... Fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. The children of Israel wandering for 40 years. And yet, during that wandering time, remember they grumbled and they complained that they didn't have food. And what did God do? God provided for them manna. In fact, it was something that they did not work for. They could not work for. 
They simply left and went outside of their tent every morning and they gathered the bread from heaven that God had provided and they brought it in and they could not keep yesterday's bread for the next day. They had to trust God. It was a time of testing to trust and to prove their faith, right? But over and over again and time and again, the people of Israel distrusted God. Even though He had proven Himself to be faithful, they did not trust Him. And so they failed, not only at their faith, but they failed at their mission because the people of Israel were supposed to be a light unto the nations. They were supposed to be exemplary in their faith, shining forth the goodness and the provision of God. And yet they grumbled and they complained and they distrusted God, even though He provided for them. Well, if you move a little bit further back, all the way to the beginning of the story, the first man and the first woman, Adam and Eve, were taken not into a barren wilderness, but they were placed into a lush garden. And in that garden, God had spoken to them and said to them, you can eat freely from every fruit of every tree in the garden except for this one tree. He put that tree in the garden to test them, not to tempt them, to prove their trust in Him, to establish their faith in Him. But what happens in that situation? They have unlimited possibilities for obedience. They've got a full table in front of them. And yet the devil comes into the garden, the same devil we see entering into this wilderness, comes into the garden and speaks to the man and the woman there and begins the conversation by saying, did God really say that you can't eat of this one tree? This is important. Because, you see, God had created the man and the woman with a mission. And that mission was contingent upon their trust, their faith in Him, in His goodness, His character, in His Word. And God did say, don't eat of this tree, because when you eat of it, in the day you eat of it, you will die. And now the devil is taking that Word and trying to tempt them to distrust God. And we know what happens, right? They distrust God's Word. They're promised an eye-opening experience, and they get it. But the problem is, is when their eyes are open, they become blinded. And death enters into all of existence, into creation, and it affects you, and it affects me here today. They distrusted God's Word, and therefore they failed at fulfilling God's mission. Now come back to our text for this morning. Matthew chapter 4. Jesus is led by the Spirit of God, not into a lush garden, where he has unlimited possibilities for obedience. He's led into a barren wilderness. And he's just gone 40 days and 40 nights without eating. And the devil comes in, and the devil has only one strategy, people. He's known as the accuser, the tempter. And he comes at them with the same strategy. His strategy is to destroy your faith, to destroy my faith. His strategy is to malign the character of God and tempt us to distrust God. And he comes at Jesus and he says, Hey, listen, if you're really the Son of God, then turn these stones into bread. Now let me ask you a question. Would it have been sin for Jesus, if not prompted by the devil, to have turned stones into bread? 
I really don't think so. And the reason for that is because there are multiple times in his ministry that Jesus does supernatural miracles, taking one thing and turning it into something of provision, right? He turns water into wine. He breaks the loaves and the fishes and multiplies them and feeds the multitudes. There was nothing wrong with that. What is at stake here is, Jesus, do you trust the Father's word? So the devil comes at him with the same question that he came at the man and the woman in the garden. In the garden he says, did God really say? And here he says, if you're really the Son of God? I want you to look back just a few verses. These are the words 40 40 days ago that Jesus had just heard. He comes up out of the water, the heavens open, the Spirit descends, and the words boom forth. This is my Son. And now the devil is saying, if you're really the Son of God, then manipulate these circumstances. But how does Jesus answer? He quotes from the book of Deuteronomy. It's very interesting. Because Deuteronomy is a retelling of what we see in the book of Exodus and Leviticus and and so forth. Deuteronomy is a, a compilation of the lessons that were learned by Moses and Israel during their wandering years in the wilderness. So Moses is going back and retelling the story and kind of summarizing what had happened and what they had learned as a result of that. And when Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy, he says there, um, he quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. Listen, listen to these words. God has led you these 40, days, or 40 years in the wilderness that He might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart. There you go, testing to see if you trust God. Testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep His commandments or not. And He humbled you, and He let you hunger, and He fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that He might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So where Israel failed, Jesus prevailed. Where Israel distrusted God and grumbled, even though God said, I will care for you, I will provide for you, trust me, Israel failed. Adam and Eve failed, Jesus prevails. And he says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The first temptation comes to an end with Jesus trusting what the Father had said. Yes, I am the Son of God. And I do not need to provide for myself because my Heavenly Father will make provision for me. Even though He's starving from the inside out, He trusts. His circumstances betray him, but his faith remains intact. Surely, this is the Son of God. Temptation number two comes. If you look there in verse 5, Then the devil took him from there to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, once again, same words, listen, 
if you are the Son of God, so he's persistent, right, this, this crafty one. In fact, in Genesis chapter 3, when it says that the, the serpent comes into the garden to tempt the man and the woman, the word that's used there is uh, to describe the serpent. It, it says that he's crafty. That word literally means and has as its root form wisdom, but it's wisdom that has been twisted. Truth twisted. You see, the devil was made as an angel of light by God, and he was made good to serve God and his purposes. But he took that goodness and he twisted it. He distrusted God's character. He twisted the goodness within him and became evil. And now this same serpent comes at Jesus for a second time, this crafty one, this one who takes the words of God and twists them, and look what he does. He takes him to the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. Now watch this. For it is written, the devil is quoting Scripture at Jesus. He says, okay, I got your strategy. So the devil comes back and he starts quoting Scripture at Jesus, but the problem is he's quoting Scripture not to sponsor faith in God, He's quoting Scripture to destroy faith in God. But God's Word always accomplishes God's purposes, right? In order to fulfill God's mission. So he says, if you're the Son of God, throw yourself down for it's written. He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. So this, this takes place on the what scholars believe to be the southeast corner of the temple. He's standing, Jesus is standing, about 400 feet above the Kidron Valley. It's the, the steepest point of the temple. And the devil is tempting him here, here with the same thing, if you're really the Son of God. He's, he's trying to get Jesus to question, are you really the Messiah? Are you really the promised one? Are you really the suffering servant? And you'll see what comes out here in just a moment. The devil is a deceiver. He's misquoting the scripture. In fact, he's quoting from Psalm chapter 91. But the problem is, he's not the author of scripture. He's using scripture for improper purposes. But Jesus is the word of God, become flesh. And Jesus knows that scripture in context. In fact, if you look at Psalm chapter 91 and you keep reading after what the devil quoted there, the next verse says, and you will tread on the lion and on the serpent. The young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Isn't that interesting? How is the serpent going to be trampled underfoot? By faith. Jesus is crushing the serpent by trusting God the Father rather than falling for these temptations. And so as the serpent twists the word of God in order to try to destroy the faith of Jesus, the trust of Jesus, Jesus upholds the word of God. He lives out the word of God. Jesus Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. 
So instead of testing God's promise by forcing God's intervening hand, Jesus trusts God's word. And he quotes again from Deuteronomy. This time chapter 6, verse 16, where, where Deuteronomy, where Moses is addressing Israel's failure to trust God at a place called Massah. So here's the thing that I want you to understand from this temptation. The essence of biblical faith is taking God at His word and being obedient to His word without needing any further confirmation. So oftentimes, we hear the word of God and we hear things like, well, you should go on this mission trip. And we know that the word of God says that we should all be about the Great Commission. We know that the word of God says that the world needs to hear the gospel. We know that we have the ability to take the world the gospel, and to proclaim it. And yet we hear that word and we question and we second guess and we hesitate. Jesus does not hesitate. He trusts the perfect word of the Father. He takes God at His word. He's obedient without further confirmation. And as a result of that, He becomes for you and for me what we cannot be for ourselves. I want you to notice the third temptation that comes along in verse 8, chapter 4, verse 8. And again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all of the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And the devil said to him, all of these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Do you see this? The, the devil now has laid his cards out on the table. He's showing his hand. He's, he's getting to the heart of the matter. It was not just about getting Jesus to distrust. It was about getting Jesus to abandon faith in God and bow down and worship the devil as a God. So he says to him, he says, I'm going to give you all of the kingdoms of the world if you will bow down and worship me. And you say, well, you know, that's silly. Why would he offer that? Well, the Bible does describe the devil as the prince of the power of the air, the ruler of the kingdoms of this age. So he has some measure of authority. He, he does have some power here, though limited. He, he's a serpent, but he's chained. He's limited in his authority. But what happens here is he, he says, bow down and worship me and I'll give you the kingdoms of the age. Or I'll give you the kingdoms of the world. Listen closely. This is the heart of the matter. He's offering Jesus a crossless kingdom. He's offering Jesus a shortcut to glory. He's saying, Jesus, okay, if you're really the Son of God, is it necessary to be the suffering servant? If you're really the king, would God put his king through what you're about to go through? Is it really necessary for you to travel this road? Because Jesus knows exactly what's about to happen. When he comes out of the wilderness, he is on a road to Jerusalem where he will be crucified three years later. He will be spat upon, he will be cursed. He will be tortured, and that's not the worst of it. He knows that the wrath of God towards all of the sins of the world 
is barreling down the pipe in his direction. And the devil says, here's a shortcut. I'll give you the kingdoms of the world, and you don't have to go that road. Oftentimes in lives, we look, or in our lives, we look for shortcuts, don't we? We look for the way to get things accomplished with the least amount of resistance, with the least amount of pain. But I can tell you right now that the world will not know the gospel of, King, uh, gospel of Jesus Christ apart from great suffering on behalf of the saints. When, when my family and I moved to South Asia in 1999, left from here, commissioned, and went out, um, you know, we found out just, just six weeks before we moved there that we were pregnant with Tori Beth. And the question was, do you, do you, do you still want to go? But that was the wrong question. You know, are you sure you want to give birth to a baby in a Muslim country in South, uh, South Asia where the health care is very poor? Uh, very poor is a generous statement. Are you sure you want to go to that place where there's political instability? Ladies and gentlemen, you, you, those of you who are here at the time, you know this because you prayed for us, you interceded for us, but within the first three months that we were in that country, we experienced an earthquake and a coup. The government was overthrown. There was a rocket attack by the Taliban at this time, uh, right down the street from our house, bombs exploding. There were tanks parked outside of our house, people interrogating me. And I'm not saying that to uphold myself. Not even. What I'm saying is, is that I knew, and we must know, that those people will never hear the gospel unless people stop taking shortcuts. The world will not hear the gospel. The mission will not be complete apart from suffering. And there's a brand of gospel that's being sold around the world today that says that if you follow Jesus, everything's going to go well for you. But that flies in the face of what Jesus said. Take up your cross and follow me. Understand that to follow Jesus... It means joy, but it means joy in the midst of suffering. And Jesus got this. Praise God, He didn't fall for the temptation. He didn't take the shortcut. He didn't try to get a crossless kingdom. And He responded to the devil, quoting again from Deuteronomy. And then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13 says, It's the Lord your God you shall fear, Him only shall you serve, his, by His name shall you swear. And it goes on and says, You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples around you, for the Lord your God is in your midst, and He is a jealous God. The devil had offered him a shortcut. Bow down and worship Me. And Jesus says, No. I know the road that's ahead, and I'm willing to endure. I will trust. 
I will trust. So the Son of God refuses to go after other gods. He trusted God's word. He went on to willingly give himself as the suffering servant in order to triumphantly fulfill all righteousness and complete the mission of God through the people that would be swept up into the kingdom by surrendering in faith to him, me, perhaps you. So in conclusion, here's here's what I want to leave you with. Mankind was made to worship and to obey God. Adam and Eve were made good. They were made awestruck worshipers. And they were placed into a lush garden to live and to cultivate and to multiply in obedience to God. In fact, Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, first recorded words of God to humanity, says that God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The mission of God has always been to fill the earth with worshipers. But they questioned God's word and they questioned God's character. And they went from being awestruck worshipers to being brazen idolaters. They traded the truth of God for a lie. They exchanged the glory of God for creation. And, and in fact, they worshiped themselves. And if you and I will be honest, you know, it, it's not the serpent coming to us that's the greatest temptation. Really, the greatest temptation that you and I face is right inside of our own hearts and inside of our own minds. Not many people in here would fall for the, the lie of worshiping the devil. But every person sitting in this room struggles with worshiping yourself. Putting yourself first. And that's me included. Adam and Eve once had authority over the entire world, but in rejecting God's word, they became enslaved to the very creation that they were made to rule but God promised there in Genesis chapter 3 to send a rescuer one who would set things right and when Israel was chosen by God to be a nation through which the Messiah would emerge the promised rescuer would emerge she too was tested by God and tempted by the devil ultimately failing to live out her identity and failing to live out her mission Israel's repeated failure to trust God's word and character was an occasion for God to display his patient love and kindness throughout generations until the rescuer would arrive. Anybody here today praise God for his patience and kindness? He's been really, really patient with me. So when Matthew begins to tell this story that we read today, When he begins to tell the story of Jesus, he displays for us how the Son of God willingly comes as the suffering servant. And he lives a perfect and sinless life, a life characterized by worship and obedience toward the Father. He was for us what we could not be for himself. And when the time came, Jesus didn't cut corners. He willingly laid his life down and he said, Father... Let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will be done. And because the sinless Savior died, 
my sinful soul was counted free. For God the just was satisfied to look on Him and pardon me. I praise God that Jesus didn't cut corners. Ladies and gentlemen, the text today, it's the Word of God and the Savior of the world. It's the Gospel. Jesus is for us what we cannot be for ourselves. And the beauty of this is, is the author of Hebrews goes on in chapter 4, verse 15. He says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet he without sin. Hebrews 2.18 says, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. So when you read Matthew chapter 4, here's, here's the first application. Don't read it as a, a, a plan, a strategy for you to overcome temptation by quoting Scripture, even though quoting Scripture is not a bad plan. The whole purpose of this passage is to exalt Jesus as the one who perfectly trusts God. He himself became for us what we could not be for ourselves. So that's the first thing. But a further application is, is if we trust Jesus with ourselves, with our soul, with our eternal destiny, which I'm going to call you to do here in just a moment, if, if you've never put your faith, your trust in God and His provision for you through the person and the work of Christ, I'm going to call you to that in just a moment. I'm going to call you to respond in faith to that, to trust God. But if you've already trusted God with your soul, how can you not also trust Him with your life? Meaning that if God were to call you to get on an idling plane in the parking lot, if you trust Him to rescue your soul from hell, how can you not trust Him? Even in the craziest of circumstances, to follow Him onto mission to see others rescued. I can't promise you safety or security in following God on mission. I can't promise you that and I won't. And God doesn't promise you that. But what God does promise you is His presence. Because Matthew ends his gospel in chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, with these words. After Jesus had died an atoning sacrifice for you and me, and had raised from the dead, and he spent 40 days encouraging the disciples, those who had followed him, he called them to a mountainside, and he said, All authority in heaven and earth have been given to me. Do you hear that? The devil had promised him a shortcut to that authority. And here he stands, resurrected from the dead. He endured the suffering, and now he stands and he says, All authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. That means there's no place anywhere where Jesus is not in charge. Not in a Muslim country in South Asia and not right here in Nightdale. There's no place where His authority does not extend. 
He says, all authority in heaven and earth have been given to me. Therefore, you, my followers, you who've trusted me, you go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And you teach them to obey everything that I've commanded. And then listen. And as you're going, I will be with you always, even to the very end of the age. There is no circumstance that can separate the person of faith from their God. So that even if like millions over the course of history, you suffer even to the point of death to get God's mission forward advanced the gospel out even if you suffer to that point in that moment you are not abandoned this is the word of god this is the savior of the world let's pray